Miss the show? No worries. On point on this podcast, Toronto police have been served with a $23 million civil suit over the shooting death of a world-renowned gunsmith. The family of Roger Katanko alleged Toronto police showed up at his Port Dover workshop without using or showing a proper search warrant, opened fire, and then stopped his loved ones from helping him in his final moments. We'll speak to the family's lawyer about the case and the implications. Jewish leaders in Canada are being warned to increase security and surveillance at synagogues following the hostage-taking at a Texas shul over the weekend. FBI has been saying that this was not an anti-Semitic act, despite the fact that the gunmen targeted Jews in their place of worship and was using anti-Semitic language. I mean, how do you stop Jew hate if you can't even call it what it is? We'll talk about that. And online learning is a tool but it should be a tool of last resort. No way should it be seen as a solid education uh, for kids or even healthy for kids. We will talk with a teacher who has been speaking out on the damage she's seen firsthand with her own students and why she no longer feels she can stay silent on this. This was a big storm with a large amount of snow, big storm in historical uh, context. Uh, so it is going to take a big cleanup effort uh, and that's going to take some time, but the cleanup is well underway. I want to thank residents for their patience and I want to thank uh, our crews as well, but I want to thank the residents in particular for their patience as this job gets done and all the work that was done by all the people who have been working 24 hours a day. For a snow country, why are we so bad at cleaning it up? Alex Pearson with you on this uh, Tuesday, January 18th. Great to have you here along for the ride. We're into the hangover of Monday's storm. No longer so pretty after all, right? No longer fun. It is just painful. And we've got more snow apparently coming tonight. But there's no, there's nowhere to put what we already have on the ground. My car is literally buried under feet, feet of snow. And it's like all around it. And our street is still buried. We've had delivery guys um, getting stuck all day and people going out to push them out. But uh, this is the story facing a lot of us. We're still buried. And Mayor Tory saying it's going to take 72 hours to clean up at least. And that is the part of the statement which uh, is concerning. But it does look like schools are going to be a go for tomorrow. And uh, that means for me, I'm going to have to go out and shovel for 18 hours. But... Um, it also says, I think, tomorrow's, tomorrow's return to school may not be smooth sailing. Maybe a lot of late kids because it's going to be a bit hellacious for parents. And you wonder, you know, for a country guaranteed snow every year, why are we not better at cleaning it up? I do not understand that. I get it. Mayor Tory's asking for patience, but patience is in very short supply these days. And um, I could go on and on and on about snow, but it is one of those days where there's so much going on today, I didn't even know where to start. I was like, what do I talk about? Holy Kalino, it's a busy one. But one of the headlines that must not be buried is what I see as a complete failed justice for a little boy who died at the hands of his mother. And that mother's not going to go to jail because in this country, and especially when it comes to crimes involving children killed by a parent, uh, we just don't have punishments that ever fit this kind of crime. And I'm talking about Michelle Hansen. This is the mother who I speak of. And today she learned she will not be spending any time in prison, despite the fact that it was her negligence that led to Caden Young's death. 
And you'll probably remember this story. Well, of course you'll remember it. Caden was just three when she decided to take him for a drive late at night. She was impaired by drugs and booze. She got into her van and decided to drive around a road barrier into some flooded waters of the Grand uh, River. And then that water took over the van. Caden was torn from her arms and swept away into the raging waters. And at that time, she claimed he was having trouble sleeping and she just wanted to go out and buy cigarettes. But, you know, as a parent, as a mother, she ought to have known that she was putting this child in danger. I mean, simply by the fact that she was driving under the influence. That was dangerous. And she ought to have known that driving around a very well-marked sign that said, floodwaters don't go by. I mean, the fact that she drove around that, she knew that she was taking a chance, that she was risking her child's safety. And this, of course, happening in the cold of February, in the dark of night, it was stupid. It was dangerous. It was reckless. And her job as a parent, you know, it is to protect her child. And she failed. And then she lied to everyone about what really happened. And her actions would lead to a 59-day search for this child who, who never actually stood a chance. And, yeah, she pleaded guilty to the crime which in this country is seen by the courts as a sign of remorse, but her reckless actions are what killed Caden. And when you think about the fear and suffering that child would have gone through in those moments, it's really hard to see how a conditional sentence and probation is enough. I mean, it is a slap on the wrist. It is house arrest. It's what we have been doing in this lockdown, pretty much. And the judge said, there's no sentence worse than the loss of a child. And sure, that's true. I mean, no amount of jail is going to bring Caden back. But, you know, in all my times covering court, one of the reoccurring themes I, 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 I noticed when it came to mothers or a parent whose negligence or abuse led to a child's death, the punishment is in no way ever bore the gravity of the crime. They were always just flimsy light sentences and then you got reductions for time served and it was just it was never enough and I know lawyers defense lawyers will wag their finger at me for that opinion but we got a woman here who's going to serve her punishment in the comforts of her home in Newfoundland where she's going to quietly move on with her life and it just doesn't seem like enough I mean it certainly doesn't send a deterrent to others it certainly won't be Justice for Caden's father, who searched 59 days just so he could have his child's body. I mean, he was utterly and ultimately betrayed by the very person he should have been able to trust most. And I don't think in any way it reflects the thousands of hours that Caden's community and the police put into searching for him. And then to add insult to injury, her long-term goal, of course, is to get on with her life, which she will do, and get her other two kids back into her life. So does, does the punishment fit the crime? Only in soft and crime, Canada. I think it's an important story. I think Caden's story has to matter. And uh, was justice served? No. Great to have you here on this Tuesday. I am Alex Pearson. This is On Point. And... Uh, Let's talk about why world-renowned gunsmith 
was killed by Toronto police. That is uh, what the family of Roger Katenko are demanding to know as they've launched a $23 million civil suit against the Toronto Police Services. And you will recall, because we've been covering this on the show, but Katenko was shot four times and instantly killed on November 3rd when Toronto police executed a search warrant at his workshop in Port Dover. And this is a guy who was known all over the country, all over the world, for his gun skills. He was so well-versed in guns that local police units around Port Dover would go to him regularly to get their weapons fixed. So he's well-known. And in this suit, the family alleges, in part, that uh, Toronto police failed to properly execute a search warrant on that day. And it also alleges that these officers used excessive and unjustifiable force storming into his workshop and opening fire, and then further used unlawfully uh, and further um, unlawfully detained the man's wife, Jessie, and preventing her from helping her husband as he lay there in his final moments dying. Michael Smitschuk is the founder of Smitschuk Injury Law and Lawyer. He's also hired by the family of Roger Katenko with this suit. Good to have you, Michael. Alex, thank you very much for having me. When we last uh, spoke, you alleged that on the day of this shooting, uh, Toronto police showed up. I mean, they came with their ambulance, which I find uh, utterly bizarre. But at that time, the allegation is that they didn't present a search warrant, uh, yet opened fire on this gunsmith. And this suit alleges, in part, um, that the family believes, you know, he was recklessly targeted. They have since, to my understanding, produced that search warrant. But, you know... What is the catalyst of this particular suit now? Well, Alex, the uh, the family's hurting. The family's grieving. Um, the loss of Roger has um, just decimated this family, especially with the holidays that just went by. So it, this, this is about uh, accountability. This is about uh, trying to get answers as to how this possibly could have happened to Roger, who was, by all accounts, um, a gentle man. And the manner in which he died was anything but. When you execute a search warrant, I mean, the, the you know, as I understand how they work, you have to present that before you enter. Is the allegation that they did not do so and yet have produced it now after the fact? That's exactly it. That you're, you're quite right. The law requires that you at least, at a minimum, have the search warrant present at the place that you're looking to search. And we have not received any information or evidence that that was done. Um, and so, you know, that's troubling. It certainly was not presented to any of the family members, including Roger's wife. And so uh, we say as a starting point, this was an unlawful entry on Roger's premises, uh, his workshop. And uh, they did not have lawful authority to even be there as a starting point. All right, because you suggest in the suit that the warrant was obtained using irrelevant and prejudicial prejudicial information. Can you expand on that? Sure. Well, the um, the information to obtain to obtain the actual warrant it contained information about Roger, about two. Um, I, I'll characterize them as minor convictions from over fifty years ago. One was related to uh, having marijuana, you know, possessing marijuana. Um, you know, I mean, 50 years ago, uh, what relevance does that have? The other was, interestingly enough, when you talk, talked about Roger being such a world-renowned gunsmith, he was exhibiting those skills back when he was 19 at uh, college when he actually made, I'll characterize it like, just like mm. Johnny Depp would use in Pirates of the Caribbean, um, a pirate gun. 
and uh, mm-hmm. like it, it didn't, didn't have a bullet or anything like that. And um, so he was convicted of an offense related to that. So they included these two offenses from over 50 years ago, which clearly have no relevance and, and were designed to undermine his credibility before the judge that, that they were seeking the search warrant from. This uh, investigation, of course, is uh, shrouded in secrecy because the SIU um, has now taken over, and that means it can be kind of um, locked up for months. They generally say three to four months, but uh, they will—they <laughs> can go as long as they want in, in investigating this, which means we don't get any information. Nonetheless, I mean, there was a point where they were looking for this witness because there was said to be a customer dealing with um, with Roger Katanko at the time, which begs the question why why the police would have been so aggressive and taking risks of possibly shooting somebody if there was another person on the on the uh, property. Has that person ever come forward and has has anything been revealed there? Nothing. We, We know nothing about this alleged customer. We have no further details. Um, and so that that is a big question on our minds, and uh, we are and the family are determined to find out uh, who that was. Have the um, I mean, it's very difficult to get information when the SIU takes over. But have the police in this particular case have they been interviewed yet? Has that part of the investigation moved forward? Uh, in terms of the Toronto Police, the actual shooter refused to be interviewed by the SIU, which which legally under the statute is mm-hmm. his right. And so, no, they um, uh, I do understand that the other officers who were involved were interviewed. Uh, That's my understanding. But the actual shooter has not. And one of the things about this story, I mean, normally, I think in in any other time, if we were not in a pandemic, this would have been, I think, a much, much bigger story. But like everything else, it kind of gets sidelined by all the other noise. Um, but there are real genuine questions as to why Toronto police would enter this jurisdiction. And I'm still one of the bigger questions for me is given the relationship that this man had with local police who knew him very well, who dealt with him on a personal matter, who dealt with him with their weaponry. Um, it's not like he was a reckless guy. And it's also not that he was a threatening guy, because it's to my understanding and from those who knew him that I have talked to, he's slower moving. Uh, one of the gentlemen I spoke with described him as a sloth. So I still don't understand. I mean, I don't say that to, to, to you know, make fun of him, but he was not a, a threat. He, he moved very slowly. Uh, my, I still try to figure out why the Toronto police would be called to this jurisdiction, why the local police would not have been brought in. Uh, maybe that would have calmed things down. But, you know, they also showed up with an ambulance, almost as if they knew something was going to go wrong. Right. And, and that's exactly what we've alleged in our statement of claim that we issued with the court today that if they simply had reached out to the Norfolk County OPP, the people that knew him, the people that knew the layout of the workshop, the people that had been in the workshop, um, they could have said, they could have paid a visit or even called them and say, Roger, uh, we, need to, we need to facilitate the search of your, of your workshop. Uh, and it would have been arranged, and it would have been arranged peacefully. So this is definitely an outcome that, um, that, that didn't need to happen. And certainly the way it was planned, um, you know, almost... Uh, it was predetermined that it would end badly, unfortunately. I have to think that this is very, very difficult, not just for his wife, Jessie, who basically witnessed uh, her her husband being shot and then could not tend to him in those dying moments, but the fact that you can't get any information for months on end, um, and she's almost kind of held captive by the Shield of Blue, which, you know, they don't have to tell her anything. So she's just kind of hanging in limbo with the family. 
Well, that's it. And, um, you know, what, what Roger's wife, Jesse, went through was, you know, to say the least, extremely traumatic, you know, to, to first be detained and, uh, and then hear the gunshots, which she did, Roger getting shot four times, and then having him brought out of the, the workshop where he's bleeding, he's immobilized, and, and the police wouldn't even let her go to him and provide comfort in his, in his last moments of his life. It's, so it's, it's deeply concerning and traumatic for Jesse. Does she believe, does she have faith in the system that she will get answers to this? She has faith um, that, that we'll, we'll get the answers for her, that's for sure. Uh, and that's the big part of this lawsuit, that um, she knows that uh, with, with the family behind us, uh, we will not stop until we get the answers. You know, we're, we're waiting. We're waiting to see what the SIU does with this. We're waiting um, and hopeful that, you know, a criminal charge will arise from this. But we're not going to sit back. We're going to, on behalf of Finn Rogers' reputation, and seek accountability and seek answers. Just before I let you go, Michael, um, you know, people will ask, why that amount? Uh, how do you come to that amount uh, for this particular suit? Well, Alex, um, it, it's, it, the, you know, there's no amount of money, let's be clear, yeah. will ever make up for the loss of Roger's life. Everyone understands that. Um, having said that, the number is, is a statement. Um, it's a big statement. It's a statement that Roger's life mattered, that what happened to Roger is unacceptable, and it should be unacceptable to everyone in this country. And so uh, we're making a statement. It also includes, of course, a claim for punitive damages for the egregious conduct that we allege uh, of the Toronto police, you know, where you have Roger's wife hearing him shot and, and mm-hmm. seeing his immobilized body. So it, it takes all of those factors into account. And uh, I can tell you, I was involved uh, in a case where a young lady died in a fire. And in the summer, the Ontario Court of Appeal upheld that verdict. And it's now the highest amount in Ontario history for a wrongful death. So, you know, that's sort of factored into it as well, um, that luckily the trend in Ontario are that wrongful death damages are on the rise. And um, so it's all a reflection uh, of those factors. We will stay tuned. Uh, Michael, very much appreciate you uh, joining us on this, and uh, we'll chat again, I'm sure of it. Yes, thanks for covering this important story. Absolutely. That is Michael Smitschuk, who is uh, an injury law uh, lawyer, and um, he is the lawyer for Roger Katanko's family. No question about it. There are questions to be asked in this case, and absolutely, his family deserves the answers, but so do we, because... We've covered this thing from the start, and we will continue uh, following it because it just uh, they are just simply things that don't make sense when it comes to this case. We do believe from our engagement with this subject that he was singularly focused on one issue, uh, and it was not specifically related to the Jewish community, uh, but we're continuing to work to find motive, and, and we will continue on that path. So apparently only the FBI could not see this anti-Semitic terror attack at a synagogue in Texas for what it actually is. And they said that on Saturday. But um, this 11-hour hostage-taking at a Fort Worth synagogue over the weekend only ended when the rabbi threw a chair at the suspect, which gave the rabbi and the three other hostages a chance to escape, the gunman who had been holding them at gunpoint during Shabbat services. And the rabbi explains in the aftermath of this that it was his training with the FBI as a clergy, which included things like active shooter drills, 
which prompted him to act. And he said that he realized time was running out for them when the gunman wasn't getting what he wanted and was starting to snap. So he threw the chair, the hostages ran for their lives, police entered the synagogue and killed the gunman. And it ends up this guy was a terrorist from the UK who traveled to the US, bought a gun, and then went to that particular synagogue. And in the aftermath of this whole thing, Jewish leaders here and pretty much around the world are urging synagogues to increase security. But in Canada, they're saying, you know, there could be possible copycat attacks. But synagogues are always on high alert. There is never a time when security is not in place at a synagogue, which is sad, but it is a reality that has been in place for a long time. But here we are at a time when anti-Semitism is at an all-time high in the world. So we'll be seeing more police patrols and increased surveillance being put in place. But the real way to fight this hate is to actually call it what it is, which is not happening nearly enough. Noah Shack is VP at the Center for Israeli, Israel and Jewish Affairs. He joins us now. Good to have you, Noah. Thanks for having me, Alex. So to touch upon this point here uh, of, you know, uh, the president has come out and called this a terror attack. Um, but there has been this debate over, you know, can we call it an anti-Semitic attack? I mean, the the suspect in this was heard on Facebook Live ranting on using a number of anti-Semitic slurs against against the Jews. And it is not by accident that he went to a synagogue. And so if, if we can't call it what it is, we can't solve the problem. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous that somebody would choose a synagogue to target to walk into a synagogue holding a gun and hold people hostage, um, specifically on the Jewish Sabbath while people are at prayer, and for that not to be considered uh, an anti-Semitic incident. Um, it, it, Jews were targeted here, plain and simple. Uh, what's more, the goal of this uh, terrorist in holding people hostage was to try to secure the release of another terrorist who's being held. Yeah. And when she, when she was arrested, um, she refused to have a, a Jewish lawyer. Uh, there are reports that she asked for genetic testing to ensure that there were no Jews or Zionists uh, um, uh, on her legal counsel, uh, and alleged that her arrest was a, a Jewish conspiracy. Uh, there's layer upon layer of anti-Semitism through this entire story. And to have people minimize that or erase it uh, isn't just offensive, it's scary um, when our community is is facing threats of violence. Yeah, in fact, it's dangerous because um, because we're, we're not admitting what is actually going on. And, and we've got these growing uh, movements like the anti-Zionist movement uh, that we kind of just accept because everyone should have an opinion. But they are dangerously, and I think a lot of people who get involved in them don't understand that what they are, um, you know, permeating is hate against one particular, um, you know, religion and the people of that faith. And so it becomes dangerous. If we, if we can't admit what's going on, we're putting a further target on the Jewish community at large. Yeah, and I think when you know when when this person, motivated by conspiracy theories of Jewish control and power and influence, went into the synagogue, it's it's very clear um, that uh, that that the anti-Semitic tropes that that sort of underline the entire initiative, and um, you know we can't we can't claim to care about the ordeal that these people suffered at his hands if we're if we're going to say that it had nothing to do with their Jewish identity. It's just ridiculous. Um, yeah. and, and it should serve as a wake-up call for everybody uh, what your Jewish friends and neighbors uh, go through uh, in, in these kinds of circumstances. Uh, all around the world, 
Jewish people are concerned that their synagogue will be next, that their community center will be next, that their kids' school will be the next one. And and as a result, um, we've all grown up here uh, in such a safe, vibrant, welcoming, and accepting society, one of the greatest places in the world to be Jewish. Uh, mm-hmm. Even so, with guards outside of our synagogues, with bulletproof glass at our schools, um, with security measures uh, to keep people out of buildings that are extending their hands, uh, you know, in, in, in an embrace to bring people in. Uh, I can't imagine. It, it just goes against the ethos of a house of worship to yeah. put barriers up to block people from coming in. But unfortunately, that's the reality of being Jewish in 2022. But it's been a reality for a long time. I mean, it goes back as long as I can remember. It's a couple of decades where, you know, you just, you don't not see um, guards or, or security at, at a synagogue. So I don't remember a time when there wasn't, you know, extra security at a synagogue. But uh, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino is is commenting on this and has spoken out about this. Um, I guess there are some concerns that there could be a copycat uh, attack, and, and I guess American intelligence has not got a specific threat, but they believe that there are other uh, people out there who are looking to commit these kind of attacks. And so money is being made available to train staff here, I guess, uh, you know, those who are at uh, synagogues to be ready. Um, and I would think that many already have some training, but they're going to have to produce uh, more surveillance and, um, and and more kind of police checks around um, places of worship, uh, mainly synagogues. Yeah, there are some some really um, excellent programs that have been put into place, whether it's the Federal Security Infrastructure Program or here in Ontario, the uh, Safer and Vital Communities Grant Program uh, that have been really a, a, a lifeline for community institutions to try to um, bolster their their security footprint and, and keep people mm-hmm. safe. More needs to be done. I think that um, these programs need to be expanded and built out. There, there's actually an excellent model in the United Kingdom that helps to empower communities uh, in partnership with law enforcement to to help maximize that safety and security. And I know that's something that's a conversation that we've been having uh, with the minister uh, about how we can uh, continue to grow programs. Uh, that exist and make sure that they're um, maximally beneficial across all the, d- the vectors of safety in order to make sure that we're not dealing with the last threat. We're looking forward proactively to make sure that we never ha- are caught flat footed uh, and, and have a worst case scenario take place. Um, I can tell you that organizations like UJA community security here in Toronto have been working very closely with police and community institutions to make sure that best practices are shared and that people are, are preparing themselves for every eventuality. Uh, but we really do need to take things to the next stage, given what we've seen in uh, Europe and in the United States uh, f- and, and prevent it from, from happening here in Canada. Yeah, I mean, we have definitely seen a, a rise in, in hate over the last uh, couple of years, certainly with anti-Asian hate, also um, you know, there's been a lot of concern over Muslim hate. The prime minister says all the time, we just don't tolerate hate in this country. But we actually do, uh, because when it comes to Jew hate, there seems to be kind of a shrug of the shoulders as if, well, yeah, that's a different kind of hate. It is not. I mean, it is the kind that apparently we accept. You're absolutely right. There's been a rise of hate across the board. Um, uh, I think the Toronto police statistics show a 50 percent increase in 2020, the last year that we have the data for. Uh, and of course, the Jewish community 
was the most frequent target. Uh, we're about 3.4% of the, of the GTA population targeted with 34% of the hate crimes. Uh, and yet, I think that's something that might come as a shock to many of your listeners. I think that, uh, and that speaks to the same phenomenon we were talking about at the beginning, about how all too often when there's an anti-Semitic incident or hate crime, uh, it gets minimized, it gets explained away, it gets erased. And now is the time for people to confront it, to take a stand against it, and to speak out with one voice, shoulder to shoulder with our community, alongside all other communities. Because if we uh, get it right when we're talking about anti-Semitism, it's not just going to improve things for, for Jews. It's going to improve things yeah. for everyone. And, and I think yeah. that's really important. We need to uproot hate in our society. Uh, and the time is now. Yeah. And you can't go to a place of worship, be it Christian, uh, Muslim, whatever your faith is, or, or a synagogue. You know, we are in very, very real danger as a society. And so I do agree with you. Noah, very much appreciate your time on this. We'll continue to chat about it. Thank you very much for having me. That is uh, Noah Shack, who is with CJA, Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. And so, yeah, we'll continue uh, watching that. But no one should be surprised that, that there is increased surveillance and security at synagogues. It's just a way of life for Jews. The misinformation about the risks and the threats and, and how dire it all is and that the only way you're going to survive this is if you do all this nonsense, that's also misinformation and we actually should be calling that out. When people are, are saying threatening, somewhat hysterical things that bear no relation to clinical experience is not based on what any of the pediatricians are saying. And, and you know, we're all sort of scratching our heads thinking, where did that come from? That's also misinformation. And I actually think it's time that we start calling people out. If you're going to start claiming that this many people are going to have a problem, well, I'm sorry, show me the study. Show me the study. Yeah, that's Dr. Martha Fulford calling for a stop to all the misinformation when it comes to safety of kids in school. She is one of hundreds of pediatricians who have been pleading with the province for months to get kids back in classrooms. And, uh, Dr. Fulford, uh, like many of them, have been up against a wall of hysteria from those, you know, many of them have their own agenda at play, and they're using COVID to fill parents with fear um, that schools are not safe, despite very clear data that has shown for months that COVID is actually not as risky for kids. What is, in fact, risky are the lockdowns and the school closures, and unions and special interest groups may have the loudest voice, but they don't speak for most parents. And they certainly don't and shouldn't speak for all teachers who are starting to see this damage firsthand. And that includes my next guest, who is a public school teacher and feels she can no longer stay silent. Betty joining me now. And um, that is not your real name, but it is what you call yourself because to put out your own name would put a target on you. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, even under my my fake name I'm I'm I have a target on my back so I could only imagine um, if I was using my real name however in my real life I am also speaking out uh, over the harms and trying to raise awareness to what I am witnessing within the classroom and I came to know you because I, I follow you on Twitter and you have been posting um, you know what you're seeing through your own kids and what you have watched happen over the last couple of years and the deterioration so what is it that um, started impacting you and what, what are you noticing with kids online? 
Well, I I had um, a sick feeling in my stomach the day schools closed because I'm I've worked in, in many different environments with at-risk youth, and my mind immediately went to them. And you know, schools are a place in which everyone who needs resources can come and get those. So my first thought was those poor children who now don't have access to these resources. Uh, once we resumed in September, I noticed um, the disconnect between learning uh, in my students, their ability to to process the material, the ability to just simply cope with the day-to-day life and the anxiety was through the roof. Of course, we, we all were nervous, but I, I'm troubled by the way in which uh, the life of the school has completely uh, gone missing. And unfortunately, I'm now witnessing uh, a rise in depression, uh, disengagement, attendance issues. And I, I can't stay silent about this because I'm, I'm seeing it's across the board. All students are suffering no matter their background. And do other teachers um, agree with you? Do you find that there are people who will come to you and say, look, I agree with you, I just can't say anything? Is this becoming more of a thing? Yes. So with the first uh, two lockdowns, I would say that there was many teachers who were in support of the lockdowns. There wasn't enough information. People weren't really sure what the risks were being in the classroom. But as time went on, and more and more people were learning about the fact that schools are not actually known to be uh, a place of transmission, more teachers are starting to realize that we need these kids in the classroom. And not only that, I can't do my job properly from home. I can't teach these kids through a screen, and I want to be there to help them. And so more teachers are standing up and saying, this is not okay. This is not what I I became a teacher for. And unfortunately, we're not hearing these messages so much on social media, but it is happening in the real world. It is, but what is also happening in the real world is that we are seeing data of the the lockdown measures and the effects on kids. And um, Canada, which well, Ontario specifically, which has endured the longest lockdowns and the longest school closures, we have actual tangible evidence mm-hmm. and data of mental health illness. But there's also the component of learning loss, which, yes. you know, when you combine all the lost, uh, you know, education in the classroom, it actually adds up to a lot. I mean, a lot of these kids have missed entire years of curriculum, and yet there's no conversation to get these kids caught up. So how, how are you making sure that they're getting what they need to go forward into the next grade? Yeah, like you said, I think we're looking at almost a year of school. If you count the days, uh, Toronto itself, I know, is, is inching up on a complete year out of school. And I'm looking at kids who are carrying this heavy fatigue from year to year, and they're not able to get caught up. There has been no ability to get these children caught up because they're constantly being locked back down at home. And not only that, we haven't even begun to talk about resources to get them to a place where maybe we can close some of those gaps, such as Uh, you know, learning programs in the summer. I've heard of no uh, extra initiatives yet. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the government's plan is. But as of right now, I'm more concerned with their mental well-being. I I can't even get to the curriculum at this point because they're really struggling. Yeah, they are really struggling. Some kids will not return at all. Some kids will fall through the cracks. There are kids out there who are not getting breakfast clubs. There are kids out there who are, you know, stuck in situations of domestic abuse. uh, So they're not being seen or, or heard from at all. Um, the bottom line is, though, 
does the union speak for the teachers? I mean, because all we hear is about the fear in schools of teachers, you know, tired and they don't um, want to go into these unsafe environments. Um, but it, it doesn't sound like that is the actual um, narrative among teachers. No, I think teachers are ready to equip themselves with what they need to feel safe. And we have various measures in place, such as vaccines and masking for, for teachers to make their own risk assessments. I have never personally been asked what I want as an educator from my union. I, I have been asking for that opportunity simply because I think it would clear the air. I think it would allow us to focus on what really matters to educators and allow us to put these kids first, because right now I don't want to fight over what I need. I want to I want to look at what do these kids need and I want to show up and I want to do that for them. So I think we need adults on the same page here with one goal in mind and that goal is what can we do to meet the the needs of these students that are in front of us. That should be the primary concern. Yeah, I mean collectively whether it's the teachers, the unions, the boards, the province, mm-hmm. it's one of those everyone has to come together to put the kids first, but so often as as you know Betty, um the kids become political pawns. I mean they, they've been it, it's not the first time school's been interrupted. Certainly this is the most severe, but there have been work to rule stoppages, there are work to rule campaigns going on right now, which is quite unbelievable. Um but but kids in the province of Ontario for a very long time have become, you know, collateral damage of of you know, government union fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a concern of mine too. And I, I will tell you, I'm not alone in in that concern. Um, you know, I think most of us chose this profession for the right reasons to show up and do what's needed mm-hmm. for the kids. And so, I don't want these children, my own children too, being used to achieve uh, any goals. I just want us to all be on the same page. So whatever it takes for that to happen, I, I, I would like to see that to be the primary focus moving forward out of this pandemic. So hopefully um, they'll get back. I mean, hopefully we can all get out of our, our houses tomorrow and get them back to school. But, um, you know, there's real concern. Certainly, I mean, look, my, my son doesn't want to go back now because he says, I don't believe that I'll stay. And so, you know, the bottom line is we've got to get them back in. But what 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 should parents be, um, the question you think, given what you've seen, what should they be demanding of the province and of the um, you know, education system right now? What I think parents should be demanding, and I'm demanding myself as a parent and an educator, is I want some clear-cut, um, a clear-cut plan on how are we giving these kids some hope here. When, when can we talk about the masks? When can we talk about the cohorting? Because if we look at the data... We have to ask ourselves, are these measures equal to the risk these kids are in with COVID? And unfortunately, there seems to be a disconnect between the actual risk and the policies we're implementing. So as a parent and as an educator, I am demanding conversations about these mitigation measures and how we can move away from these mitigation measures. Because as of right now, my students and my own children are expressing concerns that this is never ending, that they don't have any hope, that they don't see the point in doing this anymore. And to me, that is a major red flag when you're looking at an entire generation of helpless students. We need to act now and we need to give them a plan that they can wrap their heads around because at the end of the day, they're children. They need stability. Betty, very much appreciate you speaking out. I hope others do as well. And we'll chat again. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.